One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze. Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Matt Jolly, and this is Politics Without the Boring Bits. Coming up on today's episode, we continue our series, The Exit Interviews. As dozens of MPs announce their standing down, I ask them, why are you leaving us? Today, former MEP, former Minister Sir Robert Goodwill on dancing with Mo Molum, being sacked by Boris Johnson and having to ask MPs if they can put off their chemotherapy in order to vote in the Commons. Another fascinating interview with someone you might not know particularly well but gives you a real insight into the life of an MP and why he's standing down. Before that, of course, we'll have Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester, as we always do on a Monday. Today, taking a look at polling, which shows almost two-thirds of people would rather any extra money in the Treasury coffers was spent on public spending rather than tax cuts. So why are the Tories constantly talking about tax cuts? And don't forget, if you like what you hear on the podcast, you can listen to me live. Politics are the boring bits on Times Radio. You can listen for free on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or download the Times Radio app. That's Politics Without the Boring Bits on Times Radio, weekdays from 10. It is a sad, sad day for Diddy Rod DeSantis. And I can promise you this, you ain't seen nothing yet. All right, I'd like to welcome uh, Governor DeSantis uh, for this uh, historic. We're just trying, just trying to get it going because it's there's so many people. That's unfortunate. Right, I'd like to never seen this before. Uh, uh, Governor DeSantis uh, for this historic. We're just trying. All right, sorry about that. We we've got so many people here that I think we are. What they're trying to say with this is that in your boots you have heels. No, no, no. That's yeah, what no th- those are just standard off the rack um, Lucchese. Um, uh, how, how, tall are you? how tall are you, Governor? How tall 5'11". Are you? 5'11". Okay. But I have to put it to you, Governor. Have you ever eaten a chocolate pudding with three fingers? I don't remember ever doing that. <laughs> I'm telling you, maybe when I was a kid. Winston Churchill once remarked that success is not final, failure is not fatal. It is the courage to continue that counts. While this campaign has ended, the mission continues. So Ron DeSantis pulls out the Republican race. Turns out that's not even a Churchill quote at the end. And it probably originates from a Budweiser ad. So he might as well have suspended his campaign by saying, What's up? What's up? What's up? Let's chip down memory lane. Oh, what year was that? I mean, there was a lot of that going on when I was at school. What year was the What's Up adverts? I should have looked at that before. Come on. What's up? Thank you, producer Owen. Bought me a cup of tea. Thank you very much. It's not a my Andrew Bridgen mug. Has my Andrew Bridgen mug been stolen? What's happened to it? It's gone. Somebody's had it away. Oh, maybe, maybe it's finally cracked. Much like him. The Columnists with Libby Rachie, Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester. And we say hello to Libby Purvis. Hello, Libby Purvis. Hello. <laughs> and we say hello to Rachel Sylvester. Hello, Rachel Sylvester. Good morning, Matt Chorley. Lovely, 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 lovely. Now, uh, this all feels very retro. It feels like we're going back to about 2007, 2008. We're talking about the big society. Just don't call it the big society. Keir Starmer uh, saying he wants to create a society of service, hailing charities and volunteers as the glue that helps bridge the gaps. The Tories seem set on sabotaging civil society to save their own skins. They've got themselves so tangled up in culture wars of their own making. 
in its desperation to cling on to power at all cost. The Tory party is undertaking a kind of weird McCarthyism, trying to find woke agendas in the very civic institutions they once regarded with respect. So this is uh, Keir Starmer's uh, speech to uh, charities today, setting out Labour's position on the, um, on the, I think we sometimes call the third sector. Um, is this a rerun of David Cameron's Big Society, do you think, Rachel? It is a bit, but it's really fascinating, isn't it, that how has the Conservative Party managed to get itself on the wrong side yeah. of the National Trust, the RNLI, the sort of picking fights with these institutions? Mm. I think Liz Truss had the sort of anti-growth coalition, yeah. you know, the woke agenda. Um, whereas Starmer seems to be, it, it's not just the big society, it's sort of the big tent. He's yeah. trying to, he wants everyone in his... Um, big tent and um i went out with him a couple of uh week before last for a couple of days on his health tour mm. and he was talking to all the kind of health professionals in the nhs saying i want to go into government with you i want to do this together and i gather um there was a business breakfast recently where he said i'll be going into government with you with business so it's this sense of we're all in it together uh, we're only going to change anything if we get all the bits of the system. So the government's got to do its part, business, but also the voluntary sector. I think it's it's fascinating. So it's the but the interesting thing is the Conservatives are trying to pick fights with everyone. Yeah. Keir Starmer's trying to get everyone to like him. Which, when you're twenty points behind in the polls, well, it's making a curious enemies is a, is decision. Thing. Yeah. The flip side, I suppose, uh, Libby, is that. Uh, what, actually, one of the things that really baffled me about the RNLI was that a couple of weeks ago they turned down a donation from uh, a hunt, a fox hunt group who'd raised money for them. And I just thought, if once, I mean, they're inviting that. If you, they're picking a side, so they're inviting then others to pick a side. And actually, even Keir Starmer attacking the Tories for picking a side is him. Pick, you know, he could have done a speech and not talk about the the the, the culture wars around charities. What, what do you make of all this, Libby? I think there sh- there shouldn't be these sides, and mm. I mean it's it's very it's it's quite clever of Starmer. I think the the policy of let's do everything together, let's be together, is a good uh, a good good talking one. But I mean the, uh, it you you ought to actually home in on particular Tory spokesmen because we do know that the Conservative Party is basically mad as a box of frogs at the moment. You know, there's these three different lots uh, among the Parliamentary Party alone, and then out in the country. So if you could say the Tories this and the Tories that. I think it sort of doesn't work because too many people think well actually our local MP you know, you know our local branch are actually very reasonable. I think I think the idea of, of creating huge sides and you're on the right one is is divisive anyway and uh, I mean he has to be a bit careful because most people probably think that both the RNLI and the National Trust would be better governors for Britain than either of the political parties <laughs> that we've had over the last 20 years so it, it's a tricky one but I agree with Rachel about his this rather clever rhetoric of let's do everything together rather than the um, you know let's slam this slam that stamp on that which is coming from not all the Tory party but large bits of it. I was really fascinated at the Tory conference. Every single speech virtually had some attack on woke. Mm. And I think they were, you know, even Steve Barclay, who was, I think, the health secretary at the time, his kind of big policy announcement in the midst of a major NHS crisis was something to do with transgender people in hospital wards. You know, so there were, and Kemi Badenoch talked about woke. They all talked about and woke. there was, you know, Labour want to tax meat. You know, there was all, it was all exactly. just sort of, but the, sorry, it was frankly not true. But yeah. they all felt the need to do it. But I think it's the sense that they're preparing for a leadership contest that's going to come. So they were all the beauty parade involved attacks on woke, um, which is you know fascinating. Whereas actually, a lot of the people probably on the grassroots of the Conservative Party were or are members of the National Trust and the RNLI and all these yeah. great civic institutions. And then, and then, Libby, as sort of, there is a thread that runs from this conversation about you know the role of society and community in, in you know public life to the subject of your column today, where uh, you re- reflecting on. The, I mean, it's such a terrible story. This the death of uh, two-year-old Bronson Battersby, found dead lying next to his father who'd suffered a heart attack, and actually, the the the, the way that community didn't come together and and that the, the the people sort of assume that maybe someone else was sorting this out and 
and the the squeamishness of knocking on a door or or raising the alarm. Actually, you know, the ultimate tale of of community not not stepping in and helping out. Yes, well, community. I mean, a lot of that community sort of did did want to and wished they could. And of course, social services did the thing of knocking on the door and then coming back two days later and knocking on the door again. Uh, the child's life could have been saved probably at that second knock on the door because it was five days later that uh, they were eventually found. It's the most dreadful story. Uh, I mean, I I think, you know, it's interesting, all this sort of showy talk about tax cuts and so on, that it is nonsense. Most people know that social services need a great deal more resources and police need more resources, community resources. If we're not, you know, if, the, if we're not living in these tight little communities where all the grannies come round and give you a slap if you're doing it wrong, then you know we do need the state and it does need money it does need support but it also needs a certain amount of extra power i mean i wish that the social worker had a key to the door because it was such a fragile situation of a man with a heart condition and a child of two uh you know never going out because he had a bad foot you know and and one report to the nspcc you know this is a point where you have to say actually family privacy and individual human dignity actually have to come second to saving two-year-olds but i suppose it all feeds in doesn't it um and it's a point that libby makes rachel the the this sort of sense of get the government out of my way, stop interfering in my life, it's PC gone mad, it's woke nonsense that social workers would have the key to the door. Um, there's a great line actually in Libby's column, the me-first glorification of adult demands for self-fulfilment cascades down from applauded celebrities and affluent liberal, liberal middle classes to make life dangerous for those with fewer resources. And actually, a bit of nanny state woke interventionism is exactly what people are looking for sometimes when they're, you know, either financially distressed or, or in this case, you know, health. Well, there's a sort of crossover with the free market libertarian mm. uh, argument because actually the it, it, there needs to be a sort of balance between individual responsibility and state intervention. Uh, and if you go too far either way, it's not going to work. I mean, I've been thinking about it with the Health Commission because actually uh, the government can help set a sort of more healthy food culture, for example, and individuals on their own can't do that uh so but we equally we can't just subcontract the whole idea of health to the nhs we have to take responsibility for ourselves and not have a whole diet of burgers and chips the whole time but it feels like but maybe, the, whole, maybe... the concept of families is mm. the, the family privacy is the really interesting thing that now you simply can't you know because it's what everybody does and the world has changed and everyone switches partners every 20 minutes and of course you have children with three different fathers uh that because you can't condemn you know, you have to be more watchful because these situations do become dangerous. You know, you're not saying everybody is bad who doesn't observe us Victorian moral code, but you are saying you are putting yourself in quite a lot of danger, especially if you have very few resources. I suppose what's so... I mean, this could clearly... Exactly this, this tale could have played out with someone in a better financial and health position. But the fact that this family was already in contact with the social services... And they clearly were concerned enough to call the police twice, but not enough was done. And you know, I'm sure it'll all come out in the in the inquiries it's and things. Just that so follow. sad it's that just... the father, or the, you know, the the snacks have been put mm. just out of reach of the little boy. Yeah, it's yeah, it's such, it's such a tragic story. Mm. Um, yeah, it is. I mean, the extraordinary thing is that nobody was wicked. You know, nobody nobody was malevolent. You know, this isn't one of those child abuse stories. It was. It was an, a neglect story among people who wanted to do yeah. their best, but they didn't have the power and resources and, and background to do their best. Well, let's move on then and talk about this question of resources because we've been hearing about uh, councils in financial trouble again. And, you know, that obviously then feeds into social social workers because that's where they, they get their money from. Uh, Jeremy Hunt still talking about wanting to make uh, ta- uh, tax cuts at the budget, whether it's national insurance and income tax. Uh, budget coming on uh, March the 6th. In fact, here's Rishi Sunak speaking only this morning. Because of our successful management of the economy last year in challenging circumstances, we've managed to bring inflation down from 11% to 4%. We've now been able to start cutting people's taxes. So someone earning £35,000 this month, uh, the tax cut kicks in. It's worth £450. Now, that is welcome. And we'd like to do more when it is responsible to do so. Richard Sunak speaking this morning, but a YouGov poll for the Times asked people that if there is some spare money, what should the government prioritise? 
62% of people spe- said spend more on public services, even if it means not cutting taxes. 22% of people said cutting tax, even if it means spending less on public services. In every single age group, voter group, part of the country, income, there is a majority, a straightforward majority of people in favour of uh, spending more on public services. Even amongst those currently saying they're going to vote Conservative, 52% want more spent on public services, 36% want to cut taxes. Is this just a nonsense conversation that we're having, uh, Rachel, where Jeremy Hunt spent £9 billion on cutting in uh, national insurers before Christmas, it's done them no good in the polls, and the public mood seems to be we'd rather fix the, you know, if you've got some spare cash, fix schools, hospitals, the uh, justice service, social services, you know, right across the board, rather than spending money on tax. So why are they still banging on about it? Well, I think the problem is that the voters feel the, the, this sort of crumbling public mm. realm. They experience it every day, whether it's in waiting lists for the hospitals or rack concrete in schools or the trains that aren't running properly, uh, or this awful story on social services, social care not available. Uh, and government's a choice. And, you know, that £9 billion that Jeremy Hunt chose to spend on tax cuts, that could have paid for reform of social care and mental health professionals in all schools so it's by not doing that he's making a choice and and he's trying it started off as a cost of living argument we'll put money back in your pocket but the problem is that money's been out outweighed if you like by the money that's gone down from other mm. sources so now they're moving it into a growth argument we need to have tax goats to generate growth but that was what liz trust tried yeah. and blew up the economy so i think um it's a question of priorities uh but the interesting question politically is that keir starmer and rachel reeves don't really want to fight on this because they are now ahead on the economy for the yeah. first time in a sustained way uh so they don't want to say they'll do anything that differently because they don't want to risk that and uh, libby um paul johnson makes the point in his column in the times today that uh if there are any tax cuts before an election whoever is in the treasury afterwards will probably have to put them back up again to pay for it uh in all this in order for, for jeremy hunt to meet his target that debt is falling as a proportion of gdp at the end of the five-year forecast which is such a sort of muddly thing in the in the distance can we just mention that Jeremy Hunt was the longest serving health secretary we had and before the pandemic we had uh, fewer intensive care beds than any other comparable country in Europe and less stock of PPE. Jeremy Hunt is an economiser. Jeremy Hunt just, you know, he's fixated on these tax cuts and given this poll, he's mad. Well, there we are. No further questions. In fact, I, uh, I spoke to Ben Bradley earlier, the Tory MP in Mansfield, because he was uh, he's one of 40 Tory MPs making the case for more money for, for councils. And he said, I want tax cuts as much as the next man. Well, according to this, uh, 61% of men <laughs> would rather that money was spent on uh, on, on public services. But it- the interesting thing is that the Tories won in 2019 on this coalition of kind mm. of red wall and blue wall voters, as we call them. But actually, a lot of those new conservative voters would rather have money spent on public services because they rely that was, that on it. that was the Boris Johnson picture. Away from Get exactly. Brexit Done, it was more police officers, 40 new hospitals. You know, it was about, it was very transactional. These are, this is the shopping list of things I'm going to deliver. And remember, Brexit was to yeah. get 350 million, whatever from it was, the for the NHS. Yeah. It's 100 years since the death of the founder of the Soviet Union, uh, Vladimir Lenin. One of the most significant thinkers, of course, of the 20th century's ideas have altered the lives of billions. But what is his legacy today? In Russia, still littered with statues and images of his face, celebrations were muted. Putin has recast him as something of a villain over the years. Well, in the UK, a poll conducted by the Museum of Communist Terror in London asked people, do you have a favourable or unfavourable view of Lenin. 7% of people have a favourable view of Lenin. 45% said unfavourable, but among young people, 18 to 24 years, 15% said they had a favourable view of Lenin. A quarter said they had a favourable view of communism. Is this just what happens, that you start off left-wing when you're young and then you move right later on, or is there something more going on here? Uh, Dr Helen Rappaport joins us. She's an author of Conspirator Lenin in Exile. Hi, Lenin. Hello, Lenin. It's too close. (laughs) Helen and Lenin. Uh, Yes. uh, you know that in Russia, there were women called Ninel, 
during the Soviet period. They christened them Ninel, which is Lenin backwards. Well, there we are. I apologise, Helen, for calling you Lenin. Um, <laughs> what did you make of this survey? Is this is is there an increase in in popularity, sympathy towards Lenin and communism that, that, that is, is, a, is a sign of a changing public mood? Or is it just the old thing about you start off left-wing and get more right-wing as you get older? Oh, it's, 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 the flirt, it's the youth flirting with extremism, socialism, communism, anarchism, you name it. I remember when I first went up to uni, you know, 18, 19, 20 years old, I joined the anarchist society. I went on the marches and the sit-ins and the demos. I threw flower bombs at Har- Harold Wilson at Bradford. You know, you do that when you're young. You, you, you explore and you experiment with ideas. And very often with young people, the ideas tend to be, on the left what's interesting about this poll is that really until until now there's been this more of a resurgence of stalin than lenin lenin really has disappeared quite dramatically in the last 20 years i mean when i was in eastern europe and especially in the baltic states they were yanking down all the statues the minute they could get shot at them i I, I don't, I think it's a phase, it's a fad. I don't think it's going to last. We do see, Rachel, in some uh, other polling, when asked, you know, do you, you know, are you simply, do you like the concept of democracy? Are you favourable to all that? Or would you rather have a, you know, a strong man leader type? That's more popular, it seems, than younger people. There's a slight sense that if, if the, the settled uh, consensus of capitalism, globalism, has failed young people. They can't buy anything. They can't get on in life. You know, the last 20 years have been pretty green economically. It's no yeah. wonder you might start thinking, well, are some of these other ideas now worth returning to? Yeah, sure. Although looking at this poll on Lenin, it may be 15% favourable, but 30% haven't heard of him. Yeah. 38% yeah. actually. Yeah. So more, you know, more than twice as many. So I think the 15% is slightly... They're the hardcore ones. Uh, They've yeah. really signed up to the society. And that, can there I was, there was a... Yeah, go on, yeah. Can I just add that? I was actually alarmed about 10, 15 years ago to discover my daughter, my youngest daughter's generation, she's now in her 30s, hadn't even heard of Lenin. Mm. They hadn't been taught about Lenin at, at, at school. And so Lenin had really fallen off his perch. And so I don't think, I think the love affair with Lenin is a flash in the pan, really. What do you think, Libby? You're a fan of Lenin? (laughs) What a question. I used to, I joined the anarchist club too, actually, and, uh, but they were so disorganized, you could never find the meetings. Um, But no, I had my own copy of the Communist Manifesto, and I can still sing you every verse of the Harry Pollitt song. But I think what it's about is disruptors. The young always value the idea of disruptors, something new and different. And now, of course, they're doing it with a sort of technical disruptors, you know, the sort of worship of, of people who are tech bros and will disrupt everything. I think that's very natural when you're young. Do not totally accept the world around you. And if you, you're not going to turn into that kind of cartoon Tory boy thing of, you know, everything is all right. Uh, and gradually it wears off. But I, I remember rather fondly my flirtation with communism <laughs> until I started reading a bit more history and thinking, oh, actually, no, it's never been done properly. Uh. The first thing that happened with me when I, I announced I was going to university in the late 60s to do Russian was... Oh, you must be a communist, surely, to be studying Russian. And, you know, my father, who had a civil service job, had to announce to them his daughter was going off to do Russian because I might have been a security risk to him. Wow. Rachel, Um, did you 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 dabble... Did you dabble with communism? I've never dabbled with communism. But uh, I think the interesting thing is that that shift from left to right is perhaps not happening in the way it once did. Mm. So there was a poll, another poll last week that among under 50s, the proportion of people, it was 60 to Labour, 10 to the Tories. So there's a real, it used to be by the time, what was it? If you're not a socialist by the time you're 20, you've got no heart if you've not, not a... Um, conservative by the time you're 40 you've got no head but that is being that's breaking down partly because people can't buy their own home as you say they're not settling down in the same way Uh, so back to our sort of uh, other conversation I think that's a real kind of long term threat for the Tories yeah a shift a shift Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester and of course you can read them in the Times every week just get yourself a subscription go to thetimes.co.uk Up next, why did Mo Molum pinch Robert Goodwill's bottom? It's the latest exit interview. Hey. 
Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. The big thing we've already said. So Robert Goodwill is leaving us soon. Born in 1956, he left his family farm to become first an MEP in 1999 and then Conservative MP for Scarborough and Whitby in 2005. Not many people in their normal jobs get death threats, but, you know, we've had three or four over the years. You know, these people don't know me. In his exit interview, he recalls standing against and dancing the waltz with a new Labour legend. She did pinch my bum, actually. I think these days it would be quite a serious thing, but I said something a bit facetious, I think, and she... She dug her nails in quite hard. Describes being a whip, having difficult conversations with MPs about the need to vote. And I said to a colleague, well, could you have your chemotherapy on a different day? And remembers being sacked by Boris Johnson. Oh, Prime Minister, before you say anything, I know why I'm here. And if it's any consolation, Mrs May sacked me once before, so I'm used to it by now. So, Robert Goodwill, welcome to your exit interview. A chance for us both to learn what you could have done better. Uh, first question then, why are you leaving us? Funny fact, if I was a doctor aged 67, you wouldn't be saying why are you leaving the profession. You know, I mean, it's a five-year contract. It will take me to 72 years of age. And I've got lots of other things I'd like to do. We've got a farm, obviously. I've got some hobbies. And we've got two fairly little grandchildren now. So um, it was always a plan to sort of leave around about now. I've been paying extra into my pension. So I'm, I'm retiring on the full pension. So uh, why not? Well, I suppose because if you look elsewhere, you're, you're young to be a politician. If, you, you, if you're in America, you'd only just be starting to think about running to be president. Yeah, and I, I think those two should have retired a long time ago as well, maybe. But, uh, <laughs> uh, no, I, I'm, I've been in this game now for around about 25 years. I was in the European Parliament before I got into Westminster. And uh, that's a, a lot of weeks going away. You know, I, I never went to a... Well, I think I went to one parents' weekend for my kids when they were at secondary school. Uh, I spent a bit more time at home, spent a bit more time... I've actually bought... We've got a farm up in North Yorkshire. We, next year's our 175th anniversary on, on that farm. Uh, I actually bought a brand new tractor, which is unusual for me, so I'm looking forward to driving that. And, and I've got some uh, steam traction engines, which uh, one of which needs a lot of work, uh, and they all need a little bit of work all the time anyway. So I'll be throwing myself into that as well. We'll come to your, your collection of traction engines in a bit. What brought you into politics? Because, you, like you said, you're in the European Parliament first before Westminster. How do you go from being, you know, you said, long coming from a long line of farmers to then throwing your hat in with politics? Well, I'd, I'd not really thought about politics too much. I mean, my, my mum was always the secretary or the treasurer of the local conservative branch in the village. And I was very involved in politics at uh, school and particularly at university. As I was doing my finals at Newcastle University, it, it was the election campaign where Margaret Thatcher got elected and we you know, did go out with other students knocking on doors. So I've, I've always been very political, but I, I never really thought I'd end up um, in, in Westminster or, or Brussels, maybe on the council. And then uh, there was a by-election in 1986 when uh, John Spence, the member for Rydell, had died and we'd lost that by-election by a massive margin, a bit like things that happens now. The Liberal, Liberal Democrats took the seat. And the local association said, we need a local man, we need a local candidate. And I rather naively threw my hat into the ring, I think there was 200 applicants, and I came second. 
And that was a big surprise to me because I thought I would be a sort of a, a non-runner, so to speak. And uh, and I was sort of advised. John Greenway got selected and he became the MP 13 months after that by-election defeat. And so I thought, well, yeah, I might have a go at this. So uh, I applied to, for a seat for the 92 election in Redcar. First seat I applied for, I got, and, and sort of <laughs> I've been either standing for election or getting elected uh, ever since. Uh, you were beaten by Mo Molum back then. Yeah, she she was lovely. Yeah, I mean, on the, on the, uh, the Saturday... Saturday night before polling day, it was the the, the mayor's ball in Redcar. Now, you know, don't get impression of sort of uh, sort of balls you might have in London. It was in the in this sort of leisure centre, and I, and I know at the uh, they, they played the last waltz, and 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 Marjorie and I got on reasonably well. I said, well, why, we shouldn't disappoint them. Let's let's have the last waltz together. So the the the, the picture in the papers on Monday morning was was Mo and I uh, going round the dance floor. <laughs> um, she did pinch my bum actually. I think. These days, it would be quite a serious thing, but I said something a bit facetious, I think, and she, she dug her nails in quite hard. That's, that's not the sort of thing you can do now. <laughs> <laughs> Does that tell us something about something that's been slightly lost in politics now? That, you know, now we get, you know, actually both sides of politics throwing abuse at each other, you know, quite personal vitriol. We're, I feel like we're a long way from every candidate dancing the waltz with their political opponent the weekend before polling day. Well, what you see in the chamber isn't necessarily, you know, w- what you see in in the in the tea room or or, or down in the strangers' barn. And you know, I think a lot of us have have very good friends on the other side. I mean, Tony Lloyd, who who just died, you know, Tony's a great guy. He we, we we both have bus factories in our constituencies, so we work very hard to ensure that when local authorities buy buses, they buy British buses, buses not Chinese buses. So you know, uh, we have a lot of g- good friends on on both sides, and um, don't be taken in too much by what happens. <laughs> PMQs. <laughs> um, before we get sort of to Westminster, what what was it like being an MEP, and how did it contrast with being an MP? Because you know, I'm for the starting to start my career covering uh, politics. You know, trying to get your head around what was going on in Brussels and who really mattered and where the power really lay. And actually, quite a lot of power lay there, but nobody knew. You know, it was far less accountable. It seems than what was happening. In, in, so, so, so compare your two lives. When I arrived in the European Parliament, I had a very big dose of imposter syndrome because I hadn't expected to get elected. I was number three on the Yorkshire list and the opinion polls showed that we wouldn't have had it. And what actually got me elected? Well, it was partly William Hague, remember, in Europe, not run by Europe, yeah. which everybody really was attuned to. Uh, but also, because it was the whole region voting, I think Barnsley Central had about an 11% turnout and Richmond, at William's own constituency, now Rishi's, uh, I think had a 40% turnout. So although we were behind in the polls, we were picking up uh, good seats in regions like Yorkshire. Uh, and so when I arrived, I hadn't really prepared myself at all. And uh, and, and it took me a little while to find my feet. But um, I sort of found it... it I mean, it, it is... There's a frightening amount of power in the European Parliament, and and, and what was particularly uh, annoying is, and, and um, I know I'm speaking to a journalist now, is that they didn't want to cover any of the serious stories. You know, you, you'd pass a big regulation about, you know, improving bathing water quality, improving air quality, uh, making you know people safe in all sorts of ways, and and the, the British press just wanted to know about straight bananas and, and you know pink sausages. And well, we know who was responsible for that. It was all Boris Johnson's fault, wasn't it? Well, yeah, yeah, he. he has quite a lot to, to we can blame him for it over the years but yeah a lot of power in the European Parliament and I have to say the direction of travel when I was there was all about you know ever closer union and that wasn't something that British Conservative members by and large uh, supported I think some of those that had been there for quite a long time were signed up to the deal but the, the new influx that came in in, in 99 we were definitely um, if not you know in maybe not out of Europe but certainly uh, not run by Europe and that, that was pretty much what we did for five years, trying to sort of hold back the, the tide a little bit. You still voted Remain, though, when we came to the, the referendum in 2016? Yes, and, and I mean, being a Eurosceptic didn't mean you wanted to leave. Mm. That was sort of Farage and the UKIP people. It meant about getting a fair deal. And I think if Cameron had got a fairer deal, we might well have been in a position to sort of sell continuing members membership of the European Union. But, um, I mean, I voted to, to, to stay because I'm a farmer. And I've got to say, the common agricultural policy, was it was crazy. You know, the fact that we, we got a tenancy in 1850 meant that, that we got a big cheque every Christmas and we didn't have to do anything really to qualify for that. And if anyone did threaten to touch the common agricultural policy, you'd see German tractors blocking the streets, as we've seen this week, and French peasants burning tyres in the road. So um, 
it, it was a, a great scheme for farmers. Now, of course, outside the European Union, we, we have to sort of sing for our supper a little bit more. And there's an awful lot more that we're now doing. We're still getting the support from the British government, but we're actually delivering these environmental goods. So actually, although it's a lot harder work being a farmer and you've got to sort of do things and sacrifice land to get the support. Being in the CAP was, was very comfortable indeed for farmers <laughs> and that's why I, I voted to stay. <laughs> well, at least you're honest. At least you're honest. Um, what was it about the impact on you and your life? You've got two sons and a daughter. It's one thing being away in Westminster, being away in Brussels as well. What, what impact did it have on you and your family suddenly being thrown into this world of politics? Well, I think it was a big shock, particularly my daughter was quite little at the time, she's the youngest, and I I missed quite a lot of their growing up that if I'd been on the farm like all my friends and relatives, you know, I would have seen a lot more of that. So there was a bit of a sacrifice, and and initially, you know, it was quite a novelty flying to Brussels every week, but that soon wore off, and um, and I think often friends of mine who are in business say, "Oh, you've been to Hong Kong on business, that's like a holiday, isn't it? No, actually, I just saw the airport and the hotel and a meeting room, and it was a little bit like that quite often in the European Parliament. Any regrets about all that time away? I've loved every minute, I have to say, almost every minute. <laughs> uh, and, and actually, you know, if I'd not done that, uh, I suspect I'd have probably had regrets, well, should I have done something different? And if you're a farmer's son, you're often sort of expected to take over the family farm, your life's mapped out for you. And I actually, you know, drew a, drew a new map and did different things. And uh, now, um, and certainly in my community up in Yorkshire, they all seem very proud of me anyway, and, <laughs> um, and pleased that I've sort of done my bit, certainly for, for the country side and, 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 and for the Conservative Party where most of my friends seem to still vote Conservative. <laughs> They're the ones left. Um, let's turn our attention then to when you arrive in the Commons in 2005. Great news for you but the third defeat for the Conservative Party. What was the mood like there in the Conservative Party? And then you had the, you know, the leadership contest and David Cameron becoming leader and maybe a slight sense of, of turning the corner but what was it like back then? Well, I think many of them were very depressed, but that didn't really bother us because we just got elected. And, you know, mine was a a seat that Labour had held since uh, 97. It was a big surprise that Scarborough and Whitby went Labour in 97 and we were a little disappointed not to get it back in 2001. So when I came in, I'd taken a seat from Labour and I was, you know, enjoying every new aspect of being in Parliament. And, of course, I'd never been in government in in Westminster, so I didn't really understand then uh, just how depressing... uh, opposition is compared to being in government. And so you then, quite quickly, you were were sort of on the front bench, you joined the Whips office, you were Shadow Roads Minister and the Transport team. Did you enjoy being on the front bench? Yeah, I did. I mean, being in the Whips office was fantastic. Uh, In fact, the reason I got moved to Shadow Transport was one Friday when we had private members' bills. Generally, in opposition, you don't have a Shadow Minister for every debate that comes up, every private members' bill. And the first two collapsed quickly, and there was Angela Watkins and I left, and basically, we had to do the front bench speeches for about five different private members' bills. And and Patrick McLaughlin, who's the chief whip, was sat up at home in Derbyshire watching it. And and, and he got Angela and I in uh, on the Monday and said, oh, well done holding the fort on Monday. And by the way, Robert, I think you should move to a shadow front bench team where you have a speaking role rather than the whip's office. And I had three years at Transport, which was great because we were writing the manifesto for the 2010 election. Um, and many of the policies that we dreamt up and put in that manifesto are now on the statute book and, and we're very proud of some about some of the things we did because when I arrived after the election in 2010, the coalition was formed. Mm. So Norman Baker got my job that I should have had and I went back to the Whips office. Because <laughs> he was a Lib Dem and he they had to take Dem. some of this, you know, and you were, you were one of the victims of the coalition in a way. So well, good I, news yeah, you in government. I was in the Whips office and I, I became pairing whip. But interesting, what happened was when I finally did arrive three years later at the Department for Transport, all the heavy lifting had been done, getting, for example, legislation on test, roadside testing for drugs. We've got some stuff on, on HGVs. So when I arrived three years later, all the heavy lifting had been done by Norman Baker and Mike Penning, and I was there ready to take the credit, which normally <laughs> isn't what happens. Normally, you do all the hard work, you, you reshuffled, and somebody comes in and can cut the ribbon on that bypass or, or, or launch the, the legislation. So you, you, you were the one who came and cut the ribbon and uh, took the credit? I cut a lot of... I cut a <laughs> A lot of ribbons and a lot of bypasses, <laughs> but similarly, the, the projects that I signed off um, have only just been opened in the last couple yeah. of years, and I wasn't there to cut the ribbon. Just explain, you said you were a pairing whip. For people who don't know, what is a pairing whip? 
Ah, well, being pairing with is you're the one that lets people off to go to important constituency events or to uh, have dinner on their wedding anniversary with their wives. Um, and and you work very closely, actually, with the opposition pairing whip, it was Mark Tarmy, he's still there, and and it's all about sort of sharing out the numbers. So let's say a select committee is going to a visit to Canada, uh, and there's four Labour and five Conservatives on that trip. We then pair them off, and that trip is plus one, but we had a majority of 83 in the coalition, so we could afford to lose one or two. Uh, we had people who were ill, uh, we had, I mean, I remember once having a very difficult conversation with a colleague when there was a crunch vote when I think the Lib Dems weren't with us in which case it got very tight and I said to a colleague well could you have your chemotherapy on a different day now there aren't too many jobs where somebody who's undergoing cancer treatment is expected to postpone that treatment just so they can come into work and and you know we had some fairly tough crunch votes if we had a really tough vote we, we had three people with golden tickets which meant that they were uh, not expected to vote unless called in. And I remember once uh, calling across to number 10 and getting David Cameron to, to come and vote because we thought the Lib Dems were going to abstain or, or something. Actually, as it turned out, the Lib Dems did vote for us. We got a majority of 80. And David sort of tapped me on the shoulder and said, well, it was a bit close there, Robert, but I'm pleased you got me across. So, <laughs> so who else gets a golden ticket, the Prime Minister? Uh, well, prior to my becoming pairing whip, it was a Prime Minister, Chancellor and the Foreign Secretary. Uh, but on my first day as pairing whip, um, Theresa May, who was the home secretary was flying across to Jordan and various places quite a lot to try and, um, uh, you remember Abu Hamza, we oh, had all yeah. that issue so I actually rang Theresa up on the first day and said would you like a golden ticket and she said what's a golden ticket uh, <laughs> like and I Willy explained Wonka. it and she said thank you very much indeed and I hope that stood me in good stead said at subsequent reshuffles when she was Prime Minister Well it did, you ended up at the Home Office immigration, then education, then it defer, so you obviously seem to do okay I had a gap between education and 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 Defra. I got the Defra job when George Eustace resigned. You may remember, yeah. uh, and and I, I mean that was I was really sort of like a duck to water at Defra. I understand. I can remember the first meeting, Minister. What do you know about chlorothaninil? I said, well, it's a fungicide used in wheat, and it, people are saying it should be banned. And said, oh well, that means we can go to page five of the brief. <laughs> Um, so you're but, that, I suppose that's your bring, you know, your your farming knowledge and your time in, in in Brussels and so on meant that you could you could take to environment, food and rural affairs like a duck to water. Yes, I mean, unlike when I went to education, when I'd really not done anything involving education before, and I was sort of starting from a clean sheet, I, I, I knew a lot about, I have a degree in agriculture, for goodness sake, so uh, that worked very well. And I was there for six months, which coincided with the agricultural show season. And if you're the DEFRA minister, going around the shows, meeting all the farmers, <laughs> giving speeches. Trying all the food. Trying all the food, exactly. Yeah, drinking the cider <laughs> drinking down the in the cider. southwest. And, and that, I was there until uh, Boris became prime minister. And um, I, I'd back Jeremy Hunt to be the, the Prime Minister. And uh, yeah, the, so the first meeting I had with Boris after I got a call uh, to go and see him behind the Speaker's chair. Now, if, if there's a reshuffle ongoing and you're not walking down Downing Street, you know it's bad news. So um, I, I went into um, the Prime Minister's office and before he could say a word, I said, oh, oh, Prime Minister, before you say anything, I know why I'm here. And if it's any consolation, uh, Mrs May sacked me once before, so I'm used to it by now. Uh, and he burst out laughing, and I suspect it was the easiest sacking of the day. But, I mean, I've heard of people sort of pleading for their jobs and bursting into tears. I mean, you know, in politics, we've got, what, 360-something MPs, or we did have, uh, <laughs> and you've only got 80 front bench jobs. So, you know, you, you, you don't expect to be on the, uh, on, on the squad all the time. You, you know, you need to understand that you'll spend some time on the bench and, uh, and, and get used to that. Let's turn our attention then in your exit interview, uh, Robert Goodwill. Let's turn to some of your former bosses, get your assessment on the on the various bosses you've worked for. So, uh, could you sum up Michael Howard in a word? He was the leader when you arrived as an MP. Uh, well, Michael Howard got me elected. You know, it, it was Michael Howard's campaign. You know, we were in serious trouble under Ian Duncan Smith. The polls were bombing, uh, and Michael came in and in a. In a, in a in a fairly short period, made it made quite a good fist of what was had been a, a bad job, and and you know I'm, I'll always be grateful to Michael. He came to Scarborough in the campaign, and um, he 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 made us look like we were electable again. We didn't actually sort of win the election, but.
but it made us look like a party. And you know, he's a serious politician and such a nice guy as well. So, so on, uh, some, uh, some Michael Howard in a word. Decent and honourable. That's two words. That's very good. Last week, uh, Charles Walker said he was scary, so so he'll probably probably take decent and honourable. Um, <laughs> then along comes David Cameron. Some David Cameron in a word. Very astute, I think. Good politician. Um, I backed David Cameron in that leadership election because when I arrived in Parliament, we were straight into mm. a leadership election and there were all sorts of people sort of going round and, and I probably would have supported David Davis and if David had picked up the phone and telephoned me, given he's the only one I really knew, he had a Yorkshire seat, I probably would have come on as part of his team. But what happened was actually Derek Conway rang me and he said, he threatened me, he said, if you don't vote for David, it won't be good for you in terms of your career progression. And I thought, well, I'm, I'm not used to being talked to like that. David Cameron invited us round to his house and uh, Samantha w- w- was cooking lasagna. There was a lot of us there and you could tell half of them were already signed up and they were there to try and cajole the rest. The other half were there to be lobbied. Uh, and, and I sat on the, on the sort of third step of David's staircase next to him and he had a chat and I thought, well... Fair enough. Um, I, I did support Liam Fox in that campaign originally, but uh, but when da- Liam got knocked out, then then I, I went in for David. And the, the lasagna worked. The I suppose it's a shot. It's a, and you know that's been well, repeated it was a lot. It was the way yeah, I was yeah. approached. I think it made a big difference. Yeah. And um, uh, who could be better as a foreign secretary with his diplomatic skills? <laughs> yeah, lasagna all across Europe. Yep. Um, Theresa May, in a word. Funny enough, I've got to know Theresa reasonably well since she stopped being Prime Minister. Um, but when she was Home Secretary, when she was Prime Minister, I didn't really get to know her that well. And, and I'm, I think other colleagues may have the same thing. You know, she, 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 she was a, a, a little bit distant. She, mm. Maybe because she was always sort of off doing other things and not in the lobby. She had the golden she, ticket. She, she, she had a golden <laughs> ticket. Uh, and, and she wasn't somebody that was in the tea room all the time. And actually, you know, since she's, she, she, her office is just down the, the down from me in Portcullis House, and and actually, I bump into her most days, and we're actually reasonably good friends now. In fact, when uh, when when I got my knighthood, um, Rishi, who was a chancellor, uh, laid on me a little celebration dinner in Number Eleven, and I invited Theresa along, and um, actually sat her next to my uh, daughter, which I think was quite an intimidating experience. <laughs> For the ex-Prime Minister. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Theresa May, uh, a bit distant, but you're, you're friends now. Sum up Boris Johnson in a word. Chaotic. <laughs> no further questions. I think that, that we, we've sort of po- probably uh, covered that. Um, what about Liz Truss? Liz Truss in a word. <sighs> she, she, I mean, she started off so well. I mean, I'm a tax, a natural tax cutter. Um, she just wanted to do everything in the first two weeks. Um, the problem was she only got two weeks or so t- to do that. And and it was such a shame because, um, I mean, all during the summer, you know, I'd been going around on Rishi's campaign and she was saying we need to cut tax, we need to do, you know, re- really you know, come in very radically, you know, in some ways a little bit like Margaret Thatcher was very radical. And Rishi was saying, well, you'll spook the bond markets, we'll get inflation going through the roof, and the economy will bomb. And, and of course, that's what happened. And I think that's why when Rishi came in as Prime Minister, people thought, well, our hearts said vote for Liz, but actually in our heads we probably thought Rishi's telling us the truth. And and, and, and so it came to pass. Um, and and I feel desperately sorry for her. You know, she, she worked all her life to get the top job, and then it was snatched away from her in a very cruel way. And politics can be very cruel, particularly when, you know, when people get to the end of their careers. Um, if you're a minister, you, you get sacked by the prime minister. If you're a, the prime minister, then it's pretty much the parlementary party that, um, that, that you know, see the writing you. on yeah, the yeah. wall. Yeah. What about Rishi Sinak then? Rishi Sinak in a word. Uh, just a genuine guy, really. And I mean, Rishi's got the next constituency to mine. Um, when he was selected, there was a few raised eyebrows, actually, because, you know, we're not renowned for being diverse in North Yorkshire, but um, Rishi wowed them. I mean, there was no doubt at the selection. I wasn't there, but people were there said, oh, yeah, it was just mm. sort of, it was it was a complete no-brainer. Rishi got almost all the votes. Whatever he set about doing, whether that being a backbencher or as he became quite quickly a minister, he just concentrated on on, on doing it very well. And, you know, he, he's always been a very supportive friend to me and, and I will return that favour as much as I can. Uh, finally then, your exit interview, Robert Goodwill, some, some, some classic exit interview questions. Um, what did you dislike most about, about the job? I think the expenses scandal was the, the most 
terrible period. We we're, we're, were sat in the tea room having breakfast and, and opening the telegraph with trepidation to see who'd been accused. I mean, some of the things people did, you know, if, if you're a Nigerian politician, you've been accused of buying a tin of cat food uh, using uh, government money. I think most people would laugh quite hard. Uh, and, and that was a pretty torrid time. I, I, I didn't sort of have any problems with it, but, um, uh, but we all were tarred with the same brush. I can remember going in the supermarket with my wife and people, uh, friends of ours, you know, not strangers, say, point it's always oh, are those groceries on expenses, and it became quite embarrassing to be a member of parliament. And, um, and I think there's still quite a lot of that feeling around. So that was the worst time mm. during the expenses. I suppose that brings on to another classic question: Would you recommend the job to someone else? Would you re- would you encourage your children into politics, for instance? Well. <sighs> I think the problem is my, my, my children are on a career path where they probably will be earning more than an MP, and that's <laughs> that's a bit of a problem. I have a very good friend in Scarborough who, who's uh, fantastic. He'd make a great MP, and I said, you know, why not put your name in, get on that? He said, well, why would I take a 50% pay cut, and why would I have my whole personal life and everything open to public scrutiny? And, and a lot of my friends are their own bosses, and that's one thing that my friends in agriculture don't really understand. You know, well, um, we're going shooting on Thursday. Would you come with us? No, no, we've got three-line whip. Yeah. Uh, they're not used to sort of having to sort of jump to other people. I, I think I would encourage people to go into politics, but I would give them a warning that there's, there's quite a lot of flack. Um, now we've got, like, social media there's some quite nasty stuff out there you know not many people in their normal jobs get death threats but you know we've had three or four over the years one guy got arrested another guy lost his job just by making death threats to politicians who you know these people don't know me mm. you know they, they, they just sort of saw somebody up there and and have a go at them so uh, but i mean it, it, it is great particularly if you get to be a minister and i've got to say the best thing about being an mp is being a minister and the worst thing about being an mp is being in opposition <laughs> which could well be where some of your colleagues are heading when you uh, when you step Don't down. Don't write us off yet. No, well, well. finally then, you, you touched on it, but what will you do next? And tell us about this uh, this traction engine that you've bought that you're going to be tinkering with. It's quite a thing to collect. Well, I'll, I'll be doing a lot of farming, and yeah. in fact, I bought a brand new tractor uh, in the autumn, which we don't normally buy brand new, so I'll, I will be driving that quite a lot, I hope. Uh, but yeah, I've got a pair of steam ploughing engines, one of which is pretty much operational. We just need to do a bit of work for its 10-year boiler inspection. The other one needs a lot of work, so I'll I'll be devoting my time to that. And I've also got steam lorry, which is quite fun on the road. It'll go about 25 miles an hour. So I'll I'll be tinkering with steam engines. And during the summer, I actually went to Holland because I managed to buy a steam plough to go with the engines. You have two engines, one each side of the field, the plough gets winched backwards and forwards. And and these ploughs are like hen's teeth to find. I managed to find one. And I I went over on North Sea ferries or P&O ferries as it now is, uh, and, and, and picked it up and brought it back. So we're looking forward this summer to doing a bit of steam ploughing. And the summer after, a lot more steam ploughing, because obviously um, the election will have been by then. Well, Sir Robert Goodwill, best of luck with it all. Thank uh, you very including much. Including with the, uh, the steam plough. Thanks so much for joining us for your exit interview. Thanks, Matt. Brings us to the end of this week's Exit Interview. If you want to listen to any of the others, just search Exit Interviews wherever you're listening to this. We're up to about nine or ten now, with more to come. And you can get in touch with me in all the usual ways. Email me Matt at Times.Radio, tweet at Matt Chorley, or find me on Instagram at Matt Chorley, or on TikTok, or indeed all of the platforms. But for now, for me, Matt Chorley, it's goodbye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.